Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. At the end of June, the Philippines will welcome new leadership featuring two very familiar names. Following in his father's footsteps is Bongbong Marcos, son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos. And joining him as vice president is Sarah Duterte, daughter of the current president. While Marcos and Duterte are both children of politicians with contentious backgrounds, they were elected with notably large majorities. How did they win and what could their leadership mean for the Philippines? Joining me to discuss this is Nicole Curato, a professor of political sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Thank you for joining me, Nicole. Hi, Matt. It's good to be back on your program. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time. You've been watching the election carefully and you have just flown in, I believe, from the Philippines. So uh, we're going to get a, a very fresh perspective here. Were you surprised by the outcome? What was your views of the election? So I'm not surprised by the outcome at all. And I think part of the reason for that is because my field site in the Philippines since 2014. Wow, I'm starting to realize how long I've been in the <laughs> um, It's Tacloban City. So Tacloban City is the hometown of Imelda Marcos. So the wife of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. and the mother of the incoming president Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Mm. In this city, there has long been an appreciation for the Marcos family's legacy in terms of the architectural wonders that they brought um, to the city, the programs that the Marcos family institutionalized during the dictatorship. And I think these legacies were just amplified recently in Manila and in the rest of the country through social media tactics and influencers amplifying the Marcos message of unity. But really, if we take the long view, I agree with the interpretation that the Marcos family has long been trying to change the family image and emphasize their legacies instead of the atrocities that the post-1986 Philippine governments have emphasized. So it's been a good 25 years since the elder uh, Marcos was in power. And do you think that that's enough time? Well, clearly this election happened, that that's enough time for the atrocities to be forgotten? Or was that a factor at all in this election? I've been talking to a lot of uh, Marcos Jr. supporters, not just in the past three weeks before the election, but yeah, way before that. And I think there is one legacy of the Marcos regime that is actually consistent with the legacy of the Duterte regime when it comes to society's memory and appreciation for these iron-fisted rule. And that legacy is the capacity of the Filipino society to look the other way. Meaning, it's not like they deny the atrocities happened. It's not like they've forgotten that people or activists were tortured during the martial law regime. It's not like people have forgotten that there were many people who died in Duterte's drug war. But that has some form of justification. And they think that we can look the other way because now the streets are safer. When I talk to boomers who were teenagers during the dictatorship, they do recognize that bad things happened, but bad things happened to bad people, meaning the Mm. activists who were troublemakers, uh, communist insurgents. 
there is this narrative of deservingness, that they deserve to die in the same way that the drug dealers deserve to die in Duterte's regime. So I think that is part of the legacy. It's a society that is willing to look the other way, to appreciate the positive legacies of these iron-fisted leaders. So in this case, the name recognition has really helped rather than hindered by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was really fascinating because even though many observers would have probably predicted a Marcos victory, what we really didn't anticipate is the landslide victory. He's the first majority president in post-86 Philippines. And presidential elections in the Philippines, it's usually a crowded field. There are 10 people running for president with probably three to four credible contenders. Front runners change maybe months leading up to the election. But this time, Marcos Jr. was a consistent front runner, and that is also true for Sara Duterte. So I think by around February, March, the numbers weren't moving anymore, and it was really clear that, okay, they've got this in the bag. Mm, they were consistently leading in every poll, weren't they? So I, I can see why you say it, it wasn't really a surprise. Having said that, Marcus Jr. didn't join in any debates during the campaign, and he hasn't explicitly stated any policy positions. So what were people voting for? What did they believe that they were voting for and that they're going to get out of this presidency? Yes, that's a good point. So there are many ways of interpreting this. One popular interpretation is the role of disinformation, right, that supported the campaign of Bongbong Marcos. So basically, there is an interpretation of a family rebranding rolled out on social media. So there are many TikTok videos that selectively narrate the legacies of the dictatorship while erasing the kleptocratic nature of that regime. That is correct. But I also want to say that for many of my respondents, it's not just the message was saturated on social media. It's a message that they can actually relate to. So, for example, Marcus Jr. just kept on emphasizing the term unity. We need to unite as a nation. And for maybe Manila pundits, Manila-based observers, foreign observers, it sounds like a very shallow call. Unity for what? Unity will not solve poverty. Unity will not solve the pandemic. But for the respondents I talked to, they said, no, unity appeals because what we've been seeing in our democratic processes in the past 30 years is a lot of political bickering. People just keep fighting. And they use um, Vice President Lenny Robredo, the closest contender to Marcos Jr., as the example of someone who just keeps criticizing but not doing anything. Her track record obviously demonstrates that she did a lot of things while she was vice president. But the narrative was because she is the leader of the opposition, she was at the forefront of calling out the weaknesses and shortcomings of the Duterte administration and also the moral issues surrounding the campaign of the Marcoses, she's portrayed as someone who is just complaining all the time but not doing anything. So that really resonated to a lot of our respondents. And I think, Matt, finally, I also want to emphasize that, yes, maybe it sounds peculiar why people voted for Marcos and Duterte, that tandem, but really we have to situate this within the broader character of dynastic politics in the Philippines. So for the past 60 years, the presidents in the Philippines, I think, only had six last names. 60 years, six last names. So we've had two Makapagal presidents, 
1961, that's Diosdado and his daughter became president in 2001. There's an Aquino, Corazon, in 1986, and her son, Benigno, became president in 2010. And then, obviously, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. in 1965 and Marcos Jr. in 2022. And who knows, we might see another Duterte in 2028. So yeah. the point I'm saying is, There's a broader structure at play here. It's not just people's moral failings or historical revisionism, but it's really the way politics is structured in the Philippines that concentrates power to just a few families. You've hit a lot of topics there, so let's unpack all of those a bit because those are three topics that I think are, are worth their own discussions. So can we start with social media and disinformation, which you have been looking at carefully and if you weren't in the Philippines is probably the main way that you would access this campaign and how it was going and the election in general. So how did social media and disinformation work in this election? And as an outsider, are you concerned at the role that it plays in democracy in the Philippines? Yeah, so obviously this information about the Marcus legacy has been taking place long before the official campaign season started. So colleagues from the Philippines have actually looked at pro-Marcos YouTube channels that perpetuate videos demonstrating how, for example, Lee Kuan Yew asked for Marcus Sr.'s advice on how to run Singapore, or videos that demonstrate the beautiful bridges and the beautiful cultural centers that were built uh, during the dictatorship. And the argument there is, had Marcus Sr. not been ousted, the Philippines would have been a very developed country comparable to Singapore. So obviously, there's a lot of erasures taking place in that narrative. There are also many conspiracy theories. So, for example, there's a conspiracy theory that the Marcos family got their wealth from gold bars that were used to pay for legal fees when Marcos Sr. was still a lawyer. So it's a fascinating conspiracy theory because it gives the explanation where the wealth is from instead of recognizing that there are actually court rulings and money returned by Swiss banks recognizing that the Marcoses have ill-gotten wealth. So these different forms of disinformation created a narrative that the Marcos family was actually persecuted for the past 30 years. So they are the victims. And this is such an emotional narrative that many Filipinos can relate to, that look at this family, they've been wrongfully accused, and now it's time for vindication. So it's a very yeah. weak narrative people can believe in. How about for the case of Sarah Duterte, who's very much building on her father's achievements? Has the misinformation campaigns colored Duterte's track record as well and, and tried to rehabilitate his image as a result? I think what's fascinating about Sarah Duterte's participation in the election is her decision to slide down as vice president. So mm. before Marcos Jr. filed his candidacy, there were some talks that maybe it will be a Marcos versus Duterte competition. But their tandem was actually more powerful, not just because of the disinformation machinery, but because of the regional machinery that they were able to build. So in the Philippines, historically, we don't have a gender vote. We don't have a youth vote. We don't really have a class-based vote, although we can revisit that later. But we do have our geographic votes. So people vote for candidates that come from their regions. And mm -hmm. that's what Sarah Duterte offers to Marcos Jr. It's that she's from the South. So the narrative here is solid South, 
represented by the Dutertes and the solid north represented by the Marcoses unified to build this strong tandem. So I think if you ask me about disinformation in Sarah Duterte, I would probably shift my focus more to the campaign tactic of bringing her regional strength in the tandem. Mm. It was very interesting that she did make the choice to run for the vice presidency and not the presidency. I remember at one point last year, there was conversation as to whether her father would actually run for vice president on her ticket (laughs) and try and remain in some sort of power that way. That clearly didn't come to pass. But with the regional split as it is, with her representing speaking for the South and Marcos speaking for the North, does that also tie in um, with the power structure that you've got with is ruling family? Class distinction is more of a way to talk about that, that you've got a network of upper class people that are really pushing for these two candidates at that point. Yes, exactly. And some of these ruling families actually can be traced to either Marcos cronies, for example, or families that tried to regain their power by aligning themselves with the Duterte administration. And these families, I would say, are survivors. So there's a study by the Ateneo School of Government that demonstrates, I think, 67% of people in Congress come from dynastic families. We even have a category for this. Uh, We call it the fat dynasty. So apparently 80% of governors in the Philippines come from a fat dynasty, meaning they have family members concurrently serving as, for example, a representative or vice governor or mayor. So it's like a family is ruling a particular province, but there's a democratic element to it because they were voted in power. So that has long been the structure of Philippine politics. And these family alliances are just shifting during elections because there are no formal party systems in the Philippines anyway. We don't ask which party is in power. We ask which family is in power. So really, these family alliances are also responsible for the election of Marcos and Duterte in 2022. So can we talk about the current vice president, Lenny Robredo? She ran for the presidency and from the outside was very electable and had a great story. But I think that she was just running against the wrong people, if I can put it like that. She had a very stiff competition. So why do you think she struggled to connect with the voters? So we really have to recognize that the Robredo campaign did something phenomenal. 15 million people voted for her, which is nothing compared to the 31 million that voted for President Marcos. But these are very engaged voters. She was treated like a rock star. Her campaign rallies packed football fields, comparable, honestly, to a Taylor Swift rally. I've been to both. I've been (laughs) and I've observed uh, one uh, Robredo uh, campaign rally. And the energy, the enthusiasm is really comparable to a pop star's concert. And a lot of the supporters are also engaged um, online. But I think one challenge with the Robredo campaign is reaching out to people who have long been suspicious of um, the democratic discourse in the Philippines. There have been impressions, and these are impressions from my respondents, thinking that maybe Lenny Robredo is just a proxy for the liberal party that has ruled the Philippines that didn't really deliver anything for the poor. Data will say otherwise. There are data that actually demonstrate um, economic gains during that regime. Um, But the point is, 
many people feel that those gains did not trickle down to the middle classes and some of the poorest communities. So some of my respondents do have that impression that she's just a proxy for that kind of regime. And of course, there have been studies also that demonstrate Vice President Robredo as the main target of disinformation and hate speech online. So it's been systematic the way she's been discredited. So for example, there have been many spliced videos on TikTok showing her speaking incoherently, making her appear dumb, therefore unpresidential. And when I talk to my respondents, especially young respondents whose first source of the news is TikTok, they would really say, yeah, but she's very shallow and she's not very smart, is she? I don't want to put my fate in the hands of a woman who couldn't string a sentence together. So that really shaped people's perspectives of the vice president. So it's quite unfortunate, but it's also a matter of her not being ready for this campaign. She was, I think, one of the last presidential contenders who declared her candidacy compared to Marcos Jr., who's been preparing for this for a very long time. What do you think we can expect from President Marcos then when he starts his term? So two of the current President Duterte's signature efforts are his war on drugs, Mm. which has seen thousands killed or imprisoned, and his infrastructure efforts, uh, slogan is build, 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 (laughs) which is very catchy, nice and simple. Do you believe these efforts will be continued by the incoming leadership or is there anything else that you're expecting will be approached? Yes, certainly we can expect a continuation of the infrastructure agenda. And I think this is very much part of the Marcos narrative anyway, of having all of these architectural wonders to legitimize the regime. During the dictatorship, this was described as the edifice complex, the obsession with all of these beautiful structures um, to, to demonstrate that the government is doing something. Though, of course, critics would say that, of course, they will build a lot of infrastructure projects because that's how people can get kickbacks. I assume that will continue Some of the economists would actually say that as long as the technocrats remain the same and there will be no major shift with the way the macroeconomic fundamentals are run, then the Philippines will more or less continue its trajectory. We don't know yet who Marcos Jr.'s economic team will be. One of the most fascinating appointments actually is the appointment of one of the economic ministers who was also the economic minister of Noynoy Aquino. So these are political rivals, the Aquinos and the Marcoses, but the people they turn to for economic management is the same. Mm. Presumably on the economic front, on the infrastructure front, it will more or less remain the same. But for me, what I'm really monitoring are the new tactics of authoritarianism that will be introduced to the Philippines. So already, for example, left-wing or progressive representatives are already being challenged before the Commission on Elections, asking them to be disqualified. So these are examples of how legal processes, the rule of law is invoked, but really used to silence critical voices against the Marcos administration. The newly appointed minister for the Department of Justice has a track record of red tagging, meaning calling members of the opposition as supporters of communists. And when you say that in the Philippines, that automatically alerts surveillance, that automatically alerts troll armies to harass 
opposition members because they're communists. So it feels very vintage, right? Very retro. Like, are we back in the 60s? So I'm deeply worried about that because Marcos Jr. won by a landslide. He has a lot of allies, but I think a lot of governments to maintain their legitimacy need to name an enemy. And I worry that the enemy will be created in the form of the democratic opposition and basically ragtag them to discredit them as nothing more than communists. What do you think it's going to be like for Marcos on the international stage then? President Duterte, the current president, had what seemed to be a personal dislike for the United States, for example, openly criticized them but still worked with them to some aspects. And China is a big factor in the Philippines because there's a lot of investment going on for the infrastructure, which I imagine Marcos is going to be eager to embrace or work with to some extent. So what do you think the international stage will look like for Marcos? Well, first of all, a caveat, this is not my field of expertise, but at least um, based on recent pronouncements, we can expect a friendly relationship with China. So in a statement, President Xi mentioned writing a a grand story on the China-Philippines friendship and advance friendly bilateral cooperation. Mr. Marcos, meanwhile, used the term shift to a higher gear when describing the relationship between the two countries under his administration, while at the same time making pronouncements about pursuing an independent foreign policy. So some observers are saying that, yes, Marcos Jr. will continue the legacy of the Duterte administration, which is to ally uh, with China and not be over-reliant with the United States. Mm. The International Criminal Court has indicated that they'd like to investigate Duterte once he's out of office, specifically for his conduct in the War of Drugs, his performance in the War of Drugs. How do you see those events unfolding? I imagine it's definitely not going to happen. But what do you think uh, life will look like for Citizen Duterte once he's out of power? (laughs) Citizen Duterte out of power will be a fascinating character. In one of his statements, he said he will ride his motorcycle again and start shooting at drug addicts himself. And we know that this man takes things literally. So I worry that he will actually do that literally. Um, Wow. But but going back to the International Criminal Court, the investigation is actually temporarily suspended. So the Duterte government invoked a Rome Statute article that basically asked the prosecutor to recognize that national processes are working uh, to investigate the killings and the abuses related to the drug war. So they're saying, we don't need you to investigate yet. Our systems are in order. Although my worry, as I mentioned a while ago, is maybe there will be no closure, not just because Sarah Duterte is the vice president and she has the political capital to um, basically conclude these investigations, but because there is this sense that the drug war remains popular to many people, even in communities that have witnessed a lot of killings related to the drug war. When I talk to families in these communities, they do say, yeah, we hope the killings stop, but we also hope the drug war will continue because it's more quiet now in the streets. We like it better that our kids are not at risk of being recruited by gangs to sell drugs. So I think the drug war may not continue in the same way, in the same conduct that Duterte did, but I would imagine there will still be a lot of pressure to keep the streets safe. Uh, I'm doing scare quotes here for our listeners. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's definitely worth monitoring. 
It sounds like Duterte is going to leave office on a bit of a riding high. I'm curious, as somebody who researches and observes elections and the democratic process of the Philippines, the people of the Philippines have the election outcome that they voted for. They have President Marcos coming in. He's got a very big majority of the vote, and that should mean that the people are happy. Are you worried about democracy or are you looking at this kind of result and thinking this is the Philippines that the people want? So who's going to argue with them from that perspective? I mean, it's very easy for us outside here in Australia to go, we're worried about the democratic process of the Philippines, or we've got concerns because of misinformation, or even, you know, Duterte should be prosecuted for his war on drugs. But the Philippines is getting the country that they're after. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, I mean, it might sound ironic for someone who studies democracy to say that maybe we have to shelf the term democracy for a bit to try to understand what it is the people really want. And I say that because when I do my interviews with people from low-income communities, none of them use the word democracy anyway, but they have their own vocabularies to explain what it is they like in a good life. So for them, for example, a good life means being able to fight fair. So they don't like the killings in the drug war because that's not fighting fair. It's not fair that cops go to their communities fully armed and the suspected drug dealers don't even have a chance to defend themselves. That's how they talk about it. They don't say that's undemocratic. They don't say we need to protect the rule of law, but they want to fight fair, right? So I think that is an indication that the values of Filipinos are not necessarily anti-democratic. They just don't use the language of democracy in the same way that we use it. When we talk about the role of the opposition, now that Marcos Jr. is president, my respondents will say, give him a chance. We voted for him for six years, so we give him six years to prove his capabilities of transforming the country. So mm. me, my interpretation there is, Yes, of course, it's the job of the opposition to oppose. That's important for a vibrant democracy. But from the perspective of everyday citizens, for them, patience is also uh, important. That is why it's important for the opposition not to talk down on people who are patient or not dismiss ordinary Filipinos as ignorant and do not know anything about politics because they have a different moral calculation in this context. Uh, for them, it's a sense of pride that their candidate won and actually they feel validated that their choice is correct. So I wouldn't necessarily say I'm deeply worried that Filipinos don't care about democracy anymore. I think the work that we as in academics or democracy advocates need to really work hard on is to connect the big principles of democracy to how it is enacted in everyday life and situate our interventions on these everyday forms of democratic commitments that people have. So yes, on one level, it's very scary. I'm worried about the new authoritarian innovations that the Marcos Jr. regime will introduce. But on the other hand, I'm actually quite confident that there are some virtues of democracy that a lot of Filipinos are committed to. Thanks very much for your time today, Professor Curato. My pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any welcome podcasting platforms. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. Nicole is at Nicole Curato. 
and we are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.